0: Hi there, welcome along to this week's High Performance Podcast, where we speak to leading entrepreneurs, artists, sports people, and business experts to find out the tricks to their lives, the secrets, the mistakes, the successes, so you can apply them to yours. As always, thank you so, so much for the tens of thousands of downloads every week, the responses, the ratings, the reviews, they're all so, so helpful. Just a quick reminder that you can pre-order the High Performance book by going to the description in this podcast. You can also follow us at High Performance across social media. We're also on YouTube, but best of all, we're right here in your ears every single week
1: with this kind of stuff. Here's what you can expect today. I thought, that's it, I'm done. Why am I doing this? I spent a year getting nowhere, basically. And then I woke up in the morning, and I just went, fuck this. why, Why am I gonna let that person let me down? So I just went straight back on the phone, made a few phone calls, and on that day, I got in touch with the people that we're still working with today.
0: Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their high performance life and you can't do a job like this alone. Professor Damien Hughes, as ever, is alongside me. And Damien, self-made success stories I think provide people with such mental fortitude because They make us all feel like we too can follow that path. We too can retune our life to be successful. And today's guest is someone who has done exactly that.
2: This is somebody that hasn't allowed themselves to be stuck in life, whether it was uh, uh, leaving education and then choosing to go back into it on their terms, joining the corporate world, leaving it to set up on their own. There's something about not allowing yourself to get stuck that it really intrigues me about today's guest.
0: Let's do it then, because I have a firm belief that we're all born with a kind of limitless imagination, and a limitless imagination surely should give us a limitless ambition, but then the world and the people around us in it tell us otherwise. They tell us to conform, they tell us to know our limits, they tell us to understand our place, and all that is reinforced until the light inside us that we're born with is pretty much gone. And I think today's guest was showing entrepreneurial spirit, aged eight years old, selling plants, And then life kind of maybe told him otherwise until he was in his 40s. And then he refound that spirit to follow his entrepreneurial limits. So how has he done it? And how can you follow him as well? Uh, We're delighted to welcome to the High Performance Podcast, the founder of Huel. Um, If you've not tried it, you really should. Julian Hearn, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Am I looking like a picture of health, having uh, been on a Huel diet for the last couple of weeks? Fantastic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You have to say that. Right, let's begin as we always do. What is high performance? I think it's just being the best version of yourself. Um, I think my dad used to say to me, he said, I don't care what you do, you just be very good at what you do. So even if you're the, you know, just try and be the best dustman in the world, if you're going to be a dustman. Um, but I did have a little think about this. I thought, because obviously I know you asked this question, I thought, well, sometimes I like to define things rather than being woolly. So I thought, well, think about it from a numbers point of view. So I thought, I like my fantasy football. And in fantasy football, it's like 7.1 million players at the moment. If you're in the top 10%, you'd be 700,000th. It didn't sound great, top 1%, 70,000. Um, and people talk about top 1%, one, 1. You know, 1% of the 1%, but that would be 700. That seems a little bit high. So I thought top 0.1% would get you 7,000. <laughs> and that seemed like a good target. Right. I've been, sort of, I've been in the top sort of 15,000 a couple of times. That'd be the no, top 0.2%. So I sort of thought about it from that perspective as like numbers. And, uh, you know, so I think if you're in the top 1%, top one percent, that seems like a good place for high performance for me.
0: So are you driven by numbers or are you driven by happiness?
2: Uh,
1: both. I think numbers are sometimes um, a good sort of a way to sort of product to see how well you're doing. But obviously happiness is, is um, a much better achievement if you can get it. There's no point in having great numbers if you're not happy. So... I'm happy with what I'm doing, like uh, Hugh, I've said many times that even if it was much, much smaller as a business, I'd still be really happy with it because it's something that I'm into, something I'm passionate about, it's uh, a positive product, it makes a difference in the world. So whether it was 10 times the size of what it is or 10 times smaller, I'd still be very happy about it. But numbers do... You know, I'm competitive. I do I do want to do well. So I think numbers are important too. For, for
0: those that don't know, and there aren't many of them, because Huel is hugely successful. You've sold millions of units around the world since you set it up just, just a few years ago. I think I'm right in saying it's now the number one complete nutritional meal drink on the planet, right? Yes. I'm really interested in where it came from for you though, because, you know, you speak about um, on a previous interview, being an eight-year-old and selling plants at the end of the driveway was kind of the previous entrepreneurial spirit that you showed. And then that disappeared. Yeah for decades and then suddenly you go again and you start creating this business which is now um yeah so where did that entrepreneurial spirit go and how did
1: you suddenly reignite the flame yeah so it's nearly 30 years later so i I don't know if i can explain it but i suppose i just fell into normality that i didn't have any sort of i didn't come from an entrepreneurial family didn't know anybody so i just followed the sort of normal path so i left school at 16 and just got a, a normal job you just you know my mates just left school I didn't know anybody was even going to do A levels let alone do a degree you know I left school in ATA so I'm quite, I'm quite old and uh, in those days that was you know degrees were not that normal you know now they're very common but those days they weren't so people just left and got a job you know people went and worked on the building site a lorry driver stuff like that I went and worked in a shop for a year and then I went and worked digging holes in the road for t- uh, two years after that and it was only a girlfriend who said look what are you doing and that's that sent me back on into education because she said I was too smart. But in terms of entrepreneurship, you know, I just suppose I just didn't think it was really possible. I just didn't think it was what normal people did. So
0: you see yourself as a normal person then?
1: Correct. Yeah. I know you get loads of super talented people, and I'm the most untalented person probably out of all the people you've had on. You've got sort of international footballers and stuff like that. I'm just a normal guy, really.
0: How can you consider yourself, Damien, not talented when you create a product that almost everyone on the planet is has either seen or consumed? That that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't,
2: but that's what i'm intrigued in terms of julian's um comment that you made there about that girlfriend that had said you were smart that she obviously recognized that you had an intelligence or an ability what was it you would consider yourself to be smart at i don't i don't really know i think i'm sort of i'm a bit of a, a jack of all trades
1: but in terms of smart i don't know what i suppose i i, I can see it was quite logical so I can sometimes see answers that, well, the answers should be there because it's a logical answer. I seem to be quite good at that sort of stuff. But, you know, when she said I was intelligent compared to somebody who normally just dug holes in a row, she's not saying I'm intelligent to be a rocket scientist or something. So um, I don't know what she saw um, in particular. But in terms of what I was saying about talent, you know, at huel for example, nearly every function in the business, there's somebody better than me out of that 120 people. You know i'm more of an all-rounder than i am an individual you know probably marketing is probably the bit that i excel at but even within marketing we've got our head of performance marketing he will be better at that than i we've got somebody who's heads up our crm they'll be better at that than than me so i'm not super talented at one thing i'm probably more decent at lots of stuff do you feel
0: though with creating HUEL that the door has been opened to you to see a world of entrepreneurial success, so you almost feel like now you know the secrets and you know the tricks to to recreating this again and again, or is Huel just a unique brand? I've done it
1: twice now. So I've sold a business before. So the first business I set up, I uh, built that from scratch with 1,500 quid that I put in, built that, sold that for over $10 million. So I've sort of done it once and did it again. And in terms of secrets, like most things, there are no secrets really, it's just grafts, you know, you do have to become very, very obsessed. But most of it is just starting. I mean, I, I think the reason why there was such a big gap, arguably, is probably a little bit of, <clears throat> I didn't know I could do it. I didn't uh, have any examples of somebody else that I could sort of benchmark against to say, well, I'm just as good as them. And that was part of the, the thing that uh, spurred me on to do that is because I had a need, I wanted to work from home. I wanted to be with my wife because she'd had we had five miscarriages so i wanted to be at home with her and um i met some guys who were running their businesses from home and they those guys were normal guys right and they were running affiliate marketing businesses and some of those were earning serious money you know tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of pounds a month from working from home and i met them and i thought they aren't any smarter than me they're the same they're normal you know normal guys and that was part of the the thing that gave me the Uh, confidence the belief that I could do what they did and so that's why I had a crack at it and um, worked evenings weekends until I had enough confidence that I could go and do what they did can I ask
2: you a question though about during that period before you before you establish your businesses Julian that that you did well in some big corporations so whether it was Tesco or 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 MFI I'm interested in the courage it takes to leave the safety net of a big corporation Mm to then set up your own business because I imagine you've got a decent pension, you've got yeah. a decent salary, maybe a company car thrown in there. Yeah. So what was it that triggered you to want to leave that comfort zone behind and then set up and, and, and take all the risk of, of, of running a business?
1: Well, it's the combination of those three things really that I, I met some guys that I had confidence. So I didn't see it as you know, massive, massive risk. I spent a whole year pre-leaving that job, working evenings and weekends, practicing, experimenting, learning, started earning a little bit of money on the side. That gave me confidence as well. And the fact that I had enough money saved up, we saved some money up during that time I knew what I was gonna do, saved enough money up so that I could survive for six months paying, you know, only bare minimum, but paying the rent, food, bills, um, during a six-month period, and then said to my wife, said, if I can't earn my salary by the end of this six months is up. I will go back and get that job again because in some ways it is a risk giving those things up, but it's not like the end. You can always go back and get that same job or a similar job at the end of that six month period. So it felt like I tried to... I'm not that, you know, talk about entrepreneurs being very risky, I don't think they necessarily are. I tried to minimise risk as much as possible. Nobody wants to fail, sometimes you have to, but I didn't want to. So I I tried to minimise the risk and I felt at that end of that sort of year of practising evenings and weekends, I felt confident enough that I was starting to earn money and I thought if I can put more hours in, I can get more money out. So within three months, I was earning more money than my corporate salary. I
0: think what's important here though, is that when you are employed, apart from being told off by your line manager or having a bad day at work, you almost can't fail because you've got your job and it takes a lot for you to actually lose your job, right? Sure. When you leave to set up your own business, yep. you, of course you're not seeking failure necessarily, of course you don't want to fail, but you almost have to get your head into a space where you must accept failure is a possibility. Yep. And of course, failure has been a possibility with both these businesses, but thankfully that hasn't been the case. That's the thing that a lot of people struggle with. So how did you overcome the, the, the mental conversation about the fact that failure might happen?
1: I don't know if I even thought about it that really? way. No, I just felt that I was going to do it. And um, I'd built up enough confidence that I was going to do it. I didn't think I was going to fail. So it didn't really enter my head. I thought, I can see this now. You know, sometimes you work on something that much, you can just see the answer. I could see it. And I was just... I was just I don't know cocky enough I thought I could do it and because um, these other guys could do it, I thought why can't I if somebody else can do something why can't you do it that's sort of the mentality I had
2: see I think what Julian's talking about there is something that Jake and I have often spoken about where does confidence come from and one of our understandings from meeting guests on the podcast Julian is confidence comes from evidence Yep. and you've described the evidence of meeting other people that were doing it then yep. You're giving up your evenings and weekends and you're acquiring more evidence yep. Till eventually you're stepping into a world where you know you're capable of doing it.
1: You don't start off confident, but you get more confident. Each time you do something, you get a little proof point, a little more proof point and proof point. So you know, at the start of that year, I probably wasn't very confident I could do it. But then there's a few things sort of slipped into place and I thought, ah, right now I've got a result there. So a lot of the, the, business, the first business I had was quite... Um, Uh, an seo business that you had to get traffic from google so of course once i started ranking a few pages that gives you more confidence and more ranked and more ranked and i thought right i can see this now i can do this so yeah the confidence came through uh yeah proof points
0: For, for for other people listening to this and and maybe failure is not their issue sometimes it's an issue of motivation the phrase i use a lot with people is action is what leads to motivation Mm. you can't sit around waiting for the motivation to come you have to start the process can you pinpoint a moment where you thought right that is it now I I'm I'm doing this
1: I don't know if there's a single moment but I think there was definitely towards the back end of that year there was definitely money coming into that bank account it wasn't big money but it was a it was dribs and drabs but I could see that I was doing this on just like a part-time so I thought right well if I can put full time into this I could just see that I could put more in and I just felt that I can if I put those hours in and it wouldn't happen straight away, if I put you know, six months of solid work in, how could I not, how could this not work? Because I'm earning this amount of money doing these amount of hours. If I do six months solid and I just get my head really stuck into it, I'll get even better. And then rankings take time to, to, um, to filter through. Add it all together, I know it's going to happen. What
0: do you consider solid work? How hard were you working at that time?
1: Um... Get up in the morning, six thirty going to London, getting back at six thirty. so it was twelve hour days. then I was taking about an hour off to have um my dinner, then going back on the computer till sometimes eleven o'clock at night and do it again, and doing weekends, not full weekends, but I was doing a lot of weekends as well. so I did that for nearly a year, not completely solid, but that was that's pretty you know pretty good going. You know i think you do need to become obsessed to be successful in those early days because you're trying to move you're trying to create a snowball with any business you're starting and the heavy lifting is at the start so it felt like you do have to become obsessed for a period of time to get that ball rolling and once it once it goes then then you might be able to relax down the line so it's not forever but i think in the early days the first few years possibly any business you've got to do mental hours yeah
2: can I ask you about the contrast with these two businesses, so Hueled now, but that yeah. original business, because doing some research on you, Julian, I think there's a changing conversation that really intrigues me that you spoke about that first business was to acquire a lifestyle and, and almost a financial independence yeah. for yourself and your family whereas this seems to be a greater sense of purpose that drives Huel and your reason behind that. Do you think that gives you a different approach to the two businesses then yeah,
1: definitely so the first business had one goal to earn enough money so i could work from home basically that was what it was as it started to sort of snowball and get bigger then i started thinking right there's an opportunity here to to make me and my family secure for life so that was then the next goal of that business and that's how that ended up that business was a a cash generator set us up for life but i was certainly not proud of it as it as um what it done for the world it was uh, a pretty basic business really, but it was very good at producing cash. So, you know, I just um you know, I was 40, 41 years old when that business got sold and I thought I could retire now forever, but then is that what I did? You know, is that the end product of what I could do? And I felt that wasn't enough. So I got itchy feet, wanted to do something else. And uh, you know, if I wanted to just make more money, well, you know, I'm not saying I want, you know, I'm not saying more money is bad, but it should be more than that so i sort of started from the principle i wanted to do something else to be proud of and that's different from making money but still if you do something you're proud of <clears throat> hopefully the end result is that it's high quality if it's high quality then you should be producing value for the world if you produce value then the money should follow yeah and some of the decisions we've made at Huel, coming from that principle have actually been have made it accelerate even bigger so this business even though i didn't start with the principle of making money Huel. i mean we we raised uh, 20 million pounds two years ago now at value of 220 million pounds. So it's worth way, way more than that first business. But in, at no time have we been sort of cutting corners or tried to make more money or tried to engineer the product to be worth more money. We've tried to create a better and better product. And the result of trying to do something you're proud of making high quality stuff has ended up making a much, much more valuable business. So it's quite uh, ironic, I suppose. If you tried to make money, it probably be worth smaller.
2: See, I think that's a really fascinating point that listeners can maybe hold on to here, that I think too often we get caught in that either we make money or we make a difference. And I think what you've described is it's a both hand. We can yeah. both be really successful financially and we can make a difference at the same time. Yep,
1: yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that.
2: So, what would you say the sense of purpose is that drives you, and by definition, you will Then.
1: Well, the, coming back to this sort of principle of being proud of doing something, making a difference in the world. We, I know you guys talk about legacy as well, but I've got a son, and I felt that if he looked at my previous business, it's not something he would go, "Oh, my dad did that." So, I think there's something there in terms of <clears throat> doing something that does good for the world. Is um, um hopefully a cool product that people look at and they they sort of you know you know we've, we've created an amazing community as well. well that sort of stuff is just it's sort of it's much more rewarding than just straight cash because i didn't need the, the the cash that was not the purpose the world's got big problems pure tries to solve one of the biggest problems is how do we feed 7 billion people effectively uh, and with minimal impact on the environment and animals. And you think that we're going to go from seven billion to nine billion. So, you know, we hopefully will make a bit of a dent in that. But it's it's such it's so much more rewarding than just making straight cash. But of course, it's easy for me to say I already made that cash. So I know sometimes, you know, so that first business is arguably a stepping stone into making something that makes bigger difference.
0: How quickly did you realize that Huel was resonating with people?
1: Um, basically day one or even pre-day one so a couple of little signals that I got pre-launch was um friends and family and uh my first business my friends you know they knew that it was making really good money but they weren't really interested in it at all and I remember I uh, I wore a hoodie um down the pub once and I hadn't I hadn't really told them about it and they said what's that they was interested. And now I go down to the pub quite often. They're all wearing the same, like, your hoodies, right? <laughs> and so it's something that you can just see. They, there's something about the name and the logo and just uh, the ethos and all that added together that people do find engaging.
0: Who come up with the name? Because I think it's human, I mean, it stands for human fuel.
1: Right? Correct. That was me. Yeah, I did do that. So I'm, I'm proud well of
0: they You started the conversation telling us <laughs> you're not yeah, good at anything <laughs> <laughs> and you've come up with fuel. I mean, I, I love the name in yeah. itself. That's enough of a legacy, right there. Shall we end the end the interview? There's your legacy.
1: That sounds really good. Yeah. So it's um, <laughs> yeah. That was one of the little early signals. Yeah. And then uh, I started talking about it. I can remember talking about it on a, a Facebook group, just asking some questions. It was called London Startups. Asking some questions on that, and a couple of the people seemed to be interested. They're asking me questions about it, and so I wasn't trying to sell. They were asking me questions, so I could see that. And actually, two of the guys went on to buy from the test site. I hadn't even sent live. So the the early signals. You know, I've, I've done it. With, I've had three main businesses really. The first two, well, the first one, sorry, went straight away. The second one went really slowly. Went a little bit at the start and just went back down again. And then Huel went straight away. So, you know, I'm not saying that's the same for everybody. There's lots of business examples where they've just not taken at all for a very long time and suddenly go. So it's not always true. But the two that I've been most successful with did went straight away. And, and with Huel, the, the launch day we had, you know, I don't know few customers but it just every month it ramped up thereafter and, and has ever since
0: so I, I don't know what the value of fuel is today it's probably above in the billions
1: no not the billions but I, mean, I bet it's
0: not far off though not far off a billion I <laughs> it, Would know, it be so difficult it's probably it's big possibly yeah, right it's big. so and this is six years five years so it's five years and let's yep. let's say it's approaching a billion-pound valuation people will look at that and think that is non-stop Unbelievable, incredible success, but I'm interested in the failures and the struggles along the way. Has it been a struggle-free journey for six years?
1: every day is a struggle. Every single day, of course. You've got thousands of decisions. um We were talking about this other day, and I think I looked at some of my emails. Was you send hundreds of emails a day. The first ye- first couple of years, I ground myself down so much. I was doing all day, e- even as the weekends, and um I think there was a time when you know just you know, you do just these crazy hours. And I've I mean, I've given up, nearly given up numerous times. It's never easy. Even pre-launch was almost harder than post-launch. Pre-launch, just getting the, the product off the ground. Trying to find a manufacturer in the food industry is very hard. Trying to find a reliable one is even harder. Trying to find one that wants to make your products even harder still. So I ne- nearly gave up numerous times. Um, and then post-launch, there was hard times as well because it's... Um, we do a lot of our business on social media social media is quite harsh <laughs> you get quite a lot of criticism and we got we get more than most probably why do you think that is uh, i just think people are so vicious online and i think that uh was is a novel product it's different from the norm and sometimes people um fight against new stuff and uh, you know they say it's a fad they say it's bad they, you know they don't understand it it's it's um I wonder
0: if that bothers you, though, because the alternative is that Huel was a failure. Nobody ever knew about it. Therefore, no one sent you negative messages about it. It's kind of a byproduct of being successful.
1: Yeah, no, I get that. But when, when you're going through harder times when it's tough and then somebody's been on your case then uh, it sometimes takes, but now I've got used to it. So I think in the early days, I was doing a lot of the customer service um, responses and I was also doing on social media, all the comments when we pay for advertising, I hate not to answer people. So our team are now excellent. They're really sort of witty. So we try to answer everybody in a very witty manner. But when people on your case and you're doing it and it's your baby, it's quite hard to take the criticism. So I used to debate backwards and forth sometimes with some people. I remember one thread was about 40 or 50 messages. Backwards and forwards this one guy trying to persuade him. And now I just do one. If I'm going to do it, just resp- respond once, just say what you've got to say, move on, because you just can't change people's minds sometimes.
2: So given that you're creating something new and you're shifting yeah. the conversation, one of the things that often intrigues me is that there's a German philosopher from the 18th century, Schopenhauer, that talks about the three stages that all new things have to go through. Right. The first stage is people take the piss out of it. Yeah. I don't think he used that term. But <laughs> the second stage is... The uh, the opposition stage where people reject it and tell you why oh, it's a waste of time, and then the third stage is everyone embraces it, and eventually right. goes, of course, why weren't we doing this years ago? Yep. Yeah. Where's Hewell? Probably
1: middle. I suppose the you still I mean, you've got different life stages for different people because obviously you know the sort of crossing the chasm type of concept. Yeah, you've got early adopters and, and laggards and all this sort of stuff. I think it does vary from different people. I mean, we've got some guys that have you know people that are, you know love the product and super engaged in it and super believe in it. You've still got some people who don't quite get it. We've just launched our latest product, which is more likely to cross the chasm because it's seen as a more normal product. It's made with whole foods, so it's made with whole rice and quinoa and um bell peppers and stuff like this so people can see it more like real food so i think we're sort of somewhere in that middle ground we're certainly not mass market really you know in this country we're probably one percent penetration at best you know we are sort of global we've sold 100 i don't know maybe 130 million meals now um we did 72 million revenue last year but we're not mass market you know we're in sainsbury's now and some other retailers so we sort of getting there but i don't think we're quite there yet as being you know the one that's uh goes oh yeah of course that's obvious
2: sure so going
0: back to those days when even before the product was created and you had struggles and then the early days where you said numerous times you you felt like giving up yeah where are you now at what's your personal relationship like with Huel now are you as dedicated and as involved as you've always been
1: uh yeah i i (laughs) i've i've sort of tried to are work. you obsessive yeah for sure i think the the first to an
0: unhealthy th- degree
2: uh,
1: the first three years were pretty tough yeah and um i i got to a stage where i couldn't i struggled to do much more i think you burn yourself out so um i got i got diagnosed with chronic fatigue uh i gave up the ceo role to uh guy called James McMaster, who's done a fantastic job. And uh I split up with my wife at the same sort of time. So there was there was times when it was really intense. And now I'm down to four days a week. And it's much easier. But still, I'm in every I'm probably in every day apart from that fourth day. You know, you still do evenings and weekends a little bit. So, it's very, <laughs> so basically,
0: you're not four days a week. <laughs> <so you're>,
1: it's, <laughs> it's very, uh, it's very, uh you know, but there's stuff to do. You just want to do it. Yeah, and you could just see opportunities left, right and centre. It's very difficult just to... You know, I, of course, I do chill out and I do sort of spend time, family and friends. But, um, yeah, I'm still heavily, heavily involved. Sure.
0: I, I don't I don't want to pry heavily into your personal life. But what I find interesting is you've managed to create a successful startup twice over. But at the same time, your marriage has fallen away. And I think often the thing that can save a marriage, if it is saveable, yeah. is the same stuff that can make a startup successful, which is to take the difficult times on to push through the problems to fully engage in it to be totally present to give it your everything
1: maybe relationships were for me are a lot more complicated a lot more illogical sometimes aren't they're the more emotional based I suppose
0: it's not uncommon though is it for people in your position to have the issue in their personal life because everything is hoovered up by the business I don't think
1: yeah I suppose you can it wasn't I think it wasn't it wasn't just simple t- I was spending too much time on this and not enough time on that I don't think it's as simple as that if that yeah. was I would have fixed it but it wasn't that. Of course, I am. A, I can get obsessive and I do get stuck into things and uh, probably didn't give enough attention to my wife, but it was probably a bit more complicated than that.
2: Sure. Have you ever had moments, Julian, where given the success of your first business and the financial security you said it brought you, have you ever had moments where, where you have stopped to think, why have I done this again? Like, why did I need to yeah, throw myself into time, this battle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... How do you reconcile that then? What answers do you conclude with?
1: Uh, okay, one of, one of my last real jobs was a company called Dialophone. The, the two founders there had made some significant money. And I did say to them one day, why are you still here? Why are you coming to work? He goes, well, I went and sat, sat on the beach for six months, and got bored. So I think there is, you know, of course you do, when you're going through hard times, you, of course you sort of look at it and think, what the hell am I doing this for? I didn't need to do this. Why the hell did I take this back on? But the alternative is you go and sit on the beach or you sit at home doing nothing so you've got to do something and i think the intention when i started here was to do something i was going to be proud of it was going to be more intention was actually to be a lifestyle business to keep you busy for three days a week right um so i got that worth work-life balance because you know people typically when they talk work-life balance they're saying you're working too much so you need to balance it out with more rest time but of course when when i sold my first business i took a year 18 months off but you can have too much um relaxation time and not enough work time. I think there's a it's good to It's often said, of both. isn't it, the
2: two most dangerous years in a man's life is or a male's life is the year you're born and the year you retire. Because you've got no focus, you've got nothing to work on. Yeah, yeah I
1: understand that. Yeah my dad's my dad's only you know he's eighty five now but he only stopped working, I don't know, a few years ago because he had to he had a stroke. But he still had a shed down the end of the garden when he went down and did three days a week and that sort of made, made sense to
0: So when fuel first begins, the relentlessness is creating something new for people, trying to tell them the story of fuel. Yep. And I know you, you know you say you've got 1% market share in the UK, so I'm sure you're, you're still relentless about telling the story and growing the product. But what is your main focus now? When you have a business that is as successful as like this, how do you... Do you need to constantly adapt and evolve and improve? And how, how relentless is that process?
1: What you mean, like setting new goals? Mm. Yeah, all the time. I mean, as soon as you hit one, and I think, I think anything is a ladder. So as soon as you sort of say, right, I want to beat this or I want to hit this goal, then you set new goals straight away. So we, we do that internally. I've done it, you know, do it in my head. You know, when you first launched, I wanted a lifestyle business. Then it started going bigger than that. So then you set another goal. And then you think, right, now I want to be the world leader. And as soon as you've sort of done that, then you want to do something else. So what would it, you are already the world leader? Correct.
0: So what's the next goal? Uh,
1: well, there's a few. There's some long-term, short-term, medium-term right. goals. You know, the long-term, I think to be a household name would be a, 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 a reasonable goal. I think there's an arbitrary number of being a, um a billion rev business which is sounds crazy when we're at 72 but i can see a path to get there um you know some of these things they're just they're sort of non-essential they're arbitrary but you still sort of set them in your head you think right how would i get there because i think if you think if you think big then you you think more creatively sometimes about how you're going to do that. So we've been growing at sort of roughly sort of 45 50% year on year growth. So you just do that for the next 10 years and you get to some pretty big numbers. So how how do you, how do you think you can
0: go from where you are now to a to a billion pound revenue business?
1: What does that path look like today? Well, global expansion is one. So at the moment we we do sell to 100 plus countries, but we don't really um, fully adapt for those countries or markets of those countries retail we've barely scratched the surface we've only literally gone into a a handful of stores in comparison to the number of stores in the country and then more products so the savory product we launched has just increased our sales by about 20 percent so if we launch more products and then that improves retention rate and uh, it becomes more mass market or we make more retail friendly products there's so many opportunities i can see how to do it just got to do it just takes time as well it takes time and it takes
0: people. So let's talk about how you build a team around you that yep. come on the journey with you. How yep. do you get the
1: right kind of people in your business? Okay, for me, I still heavily involved. So I still interview everybody. I think I've got really good taste when it comes to people. I think I can read people quite well. So I know when somebody's bullshitting me, and I know somebody doesn't fit in. There's three things I look for. So I do look for intelligence. I do look for hard working and I look for integrity. So these three things, if you can tick those three boxes, Sometimes you need very specific experience, but uh, you know we we want to create a internal culture. I think I, I think our culture is fantastic. I think everybody you know we have incredibly low churn rate. I think there's, in the whole five years we've had, I think two or three people who've chosen to leave, one for a much higher salary, one who wanted to go travelling, and one some other reason I can't remember exactly. How would you describe the culture? I think it's very friendly. I think everybody there, I hear it so often when people come to business and say, all your staff are lovely. Like I choose people partly on, I would have a drink with them, you know, like I'd spend the whole evening with them or would have no problem spending the whole evening with any of our staff individually. I think everybody's really smart, hardworking and... You know, I was talking earlier about two retailers I worked for I worked for um, Waitrose and I worked for Tesco's and they both had their strengths and weaknesses I've tried to get the sweets up between the two Tesco's were very, very let's use the word aggressive I suppose very, very high targets, massive growth um, but there was a cost to that it burnt people out um, and there was sometimes a really bad feeling in the house there would be sort of stand-up arguments, people crying and I didn't want to work in an environment like that and uh, the alternative was at um, I don't know if I should be saying these names, but <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Um, at uh, at wage Shows I felt the culture there was just too slow. It was There was lack of energy. So they didn't achieve as big a result with Tesco. So I think the sweet spot somewhere in between. You have a really nice working culture, but you have high, high ambitions. So you want to be proud of what you do there. And I think the team there really do work, graft hard, but at the same time, we don't do crazy hours. Like, I want people to go home at 5.30, 6 o'clock. Do your hours, get home, ha- have that work-life balance.
2: So there's a great story that, that Steve Jobs allegedly once recruited a guy from, I think it was Coke, and said, don't sell sugared water. Yep. Come with us and put a dent in the universe. Right. What do you tell people when you're recruiting them into your world? So you've established that they're smart, they've got yep. integrity, yep. they're decent people.
1: Well, pretty much we were a mission-based business. So on our wall, in every meeting room, there's our mission up on the wall, which is to create affordable, uh, complete affordable, convenient food with minimal impact on the environment and animals. And I think that really attracts the right type of people. So it's been, I'm saying easy, but we seem to attract people. People try to come and work for us. So I remember one of them, um, somebody applied... On spec, there was no job. They just said, I want to work for your company. They'd taken our back label and they'd changed the back label into the CV. So instead of like best before (laughs) date, it was their born on date and stuff like that. They'd really gone to that extent. And when you sort of get people doing that sort of stuff, you know you've created something special because they want to work and they tried that hard
2: to come work for you. That sort of person you know is going to be a fantastic employee. So we talk about the fit in or fuck off type of high performing cultures very quickly, discern who's not right for us. Have you ever had. That instance where, despite all those checks and measures, you have people that just go, You're really not right for us, and we need to move you on.
1: Yeah, there was one that was really not suitable. And actually, I got persuaded by our board. <coughs> We've got two non execs on our board, and the the person we recruited was in an area which wasn't my area, it was in ops and it wasn't my areas of expertise. It was a very senior role. And I got persuaded to take this person on. But I remember I could get the email. There's about 10 reasons, little tells that I didn't like. And I said, this person's not right because these little, they're only little tells, like, I don't know, silly little stuff in some of the interview process. And um, yeah, that did not work out well at all. Uh, That was the wrong hire. So now I don't take any notice of anybody, anybody else. So I do final interview for everybody and I've got veto. But we also have two of our old school hooligans know our culture really well. And they've got full veto over me as well. So even I can say yes and they can veto. So we have quite a drawn out process. I think sometimes you might have to see about six people before you get in. But having that very high bar to get in means you only have to do that job once, hopefully.
0: Let's talk about the importance of hooligans. Yeah. Did you set out to create a a community of people that like the product? Or did that community naturally evolve?
1: A little bit of both. One of our objectives is to create a a, a product so good you you, you get fanboys so if you think about Apple products not only are they good they are so good that you get these people who come, become passionate and having passionate fans is always a good thing where there's loads of products you can name that they've got people like them they say it's good quality but they would never create a passionate fan so I remember doing a bit of reading about how to how to do that and there were people right now listening going <gasps> ha, what did you learn Well, I think the the key thing is to go that extra mile and do little quirky things, little different things that would. So there's a concept of a, a thousand true fans which was done by kevin kelly who used to write for wired and his concept is if you can go that extra mile and create really passionate people you can create a lifestyle business from a thousand people that's all you need to do so don't try and sell to the whole world if you get a thousand people his concept is they will spend a hundred pounds a year with you so you get a thousand people spending a hundred pounds that's a hundred thousand pound a year business so when i first launched sure i thought right if i can get I could get 1,000 fans each month to pay £45 for Huel, that's six, roughly 600k a year. Your profit margin is X, which means that you've probably got a nice lifestyle business. So it felt like that's a good way to, to approach things. Rather than trying to think, how do I sell to everybody, just really niche it right down and go, I'm going to make these people super happy. So the first 1,000 people to bought from Huel, I remember I packed every box, made every box myself. We put a T-shirt in there, so it was more than just you just bought the product. We, I also produced this uh, A4 card that I got designed. I sort of I put a sort of, few sort of inspirational quotes on it and stuff like that. I numbered each one, handwrit you know, wrote and I hand signed each one. It was like a thank you card from buying from us. Put that in the box. You did stuff that I think um, the guys from Y Combinate do things that don't scale in your first, in your early days. If you're creating something for people, you've got to do something special. Because if, yeah. if they're buying, I don't know, a watch, and it's a Casio. Didn't they expect it just to arrive with no... No s- fanfare. Exactly. Yeah. But they're taking a punt on you if you're a brand new business. They don't know who you are. They don't even know where it's going to turn up, arguably. They've just seen me online. They've never tasted this product, so I should do something special back. So I think going that extra mile makes a big difference. Then, though, it, it starts to grow, right? Did you find that you did a bit extra for
0: people and then it was word of mouth? Or how did, how did the big community
1: get created obviously this is this takes time so there was no sort of you know massive particular point i do remember that i didn't have any experience with social at all really because i was uh i I suppose it just didn't maybe a little bit of facebook yeah but there was a i remember there's a couple of guys from france actually they started posting a lot of pictures about how proud they were to have this product when it arrived and i remember seeing it i was thinking oh this is interesting you know when i first started where i hired a few people Uh, more generalist than anything else and i just said can you look at this social stuff i don't know anything about it And people posted about Huel, can you sort of engage with them so we got back to everybody spoke to them and sort of chatted to them and um it just sort of snowballed from there and so then that that person's now he leads up our all our social activity
0: and why was it important to you at the very beginning to create a community rather than just make a nice product and let people drink it
1: I don't know, I just think there's more to life than just selling stuff. So again, I wanted to do something I was to be proud of, and I just felt that if we had a community, if we made people happy, you know, that this is the, you know, we have uh, at work, we have our sort of DNA, our brand values. We also have what the team are expected of individuals. Mm-hmm. The number one job of everybody is to make, make customers happy. That's your number one job. So part of it is a community. And again, we created a forum on the site where people can chat to each other. It's, it's just, it's just great in every respect. You've, it's heartwarming sometimes when you get the feedback, but it's also great for us to communicate yeah. with people because we talk to our customers thousands thousand times a day, thousands of times a day. And when you talk to people, you can learn. So we make our products better. Whereas if you're dealing with retailers, we're direct to consumer. So the fact we speak to people, we know what they yeah. want, we know what they don't like. And we can then work much faster rather than speaking to the buyer at Tesco's once every year and getting a little bit of feedback. We speak to our customers every day. So that whole community, that whole. Uh, you know our forum is like a test bed We've got a closed forum where people are signed NDAs and we have really private conversations give them test products way in advance It's it's super useful. Yeah. see I what I think is really interesting here
0: is that The most important thing in my opinion for Huel is that you made your money before you launched it Yeah, because if you'd have gone into this going I just need to make money you wouldn't have gone to town as you did with the branding yep. because you absolutely felt really passionate about the branding you wouldn't have created a community of hooligans because it wouldn't have really mattered yep. like you did that because it wasn't necessarily the best business decision although it's turned out to be extremely yep. smart you did it because you really believed in what you were doing and the, the the amount of kind of personal input that went into this business the fact that this was a passion business rather than money making business it feels like five or six years later
2: yep
1: that's
0: the reason for the success. Am I right?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I think that, uh, you know, if if somebody's talking to me today and asked me some advice, I would probably say that... You know there's there's a time and a place for certain products say you wanted to launch a i don't know a new electric car you'd probably not it should probably not be your first business you know elon musk did not make his money making electric cars he made his money from paypal i think so that business might be more easy to get off the ground there's certain businesses which are hard to get off the ground and certain businesses which are easy to get off the ground if you're starting from zero like i had no rich parents and i started with effectively nothing so it, If you're doing that, then you might have to think about it in a different way. You might have to create a business that can make money that you can then use for the more hard business because Huel took nearly 18 months to get off the ground from start to finish. If I jacked my job on that one, I would have given up before I got to launch that product. Mm. So you need a business which is easy to get off the ground with minimal sort of investment and is going to pay back and start generating cash pretty quick. Whereas, Hugh, sure, that didn't happen. It took 18 months to, to get any money out of
2: the door. I think, does it, like as you're saying it, Julian, I'm I'm reminded of a story about the old uh, football manager, Brian Clough. And when he was interviewed, uh, when he was successful at Nottingham Forest, and he attributed a big part of his success to his biggest failure, which was being sacked by Leeds United after 44 days. And when the interviewer said to him, well, surely that was an embarrassment for you," he said, well, it was, but... They had to pay me four years' salary and right. for forty four days work and he said and I put the money in my bank and yeah. he described it as his fuck you money. Yeah. So that it allowed him not to have to compromise when he went to Nottingham Forest. He felt liberated enough to do things in the way that he wanted to do it. Yep. Rather than like you say, responding to what a board is demanding of you or yep. wanting to see a return on that investment. Yeah, that's
1: that sounds pretty logical to me that yeah, once you've got a little bit of money behind you, you can make Uh, braver decisions you can do it your way rather than you're sort of scared to make that decision or it won't immediately pay back because like you're right some of the stuff that we did at Hill maybe never pays back I don't know but some of it was done for different reasons people maybe buy into you a bit more if you're not trying to squeeze every penny out of them And, uh, you know, some of the decisions we make, we've changed some of our ingredients. We put much more expensive ingredients in, but we don't charge any more money for them because we wanted to make the product better. So sometimes it's those sorts of decisions that actually pay back in the long
2: term rather than the short term. So do you think there is something for a listener here that might be thinking, well, I really want to follow this path, but I don't have that financial security at this moment in time. Would you say it's something about thinking long term then rather than short term? So we've interviewed other entrepreneurs that say, don't do it for a three-year investment, do it for a 20-year investment. Mm. Is, is that a mindset that you'd encourage? No, I don't think so. Because I mean, it depends on where you
1: are, right? Yeah. So... You know, For me at the time, I had, a, I had to get a business that paid back in six months. That was my challenge, wasn't it? So I think most people are probably more in those shoes than they are in a three-year or five-year or 20-year payback. Yeah. So I think most people, unless you can go and get funding from somewhere, which I couldn't or I didn't even think I could, I wanted to do it myself. So I bootstrapped both, all of my businesses. Um, so I think it depends on what your particular goal is, what your challenge is. But I think most people are in the corporate world. They're working now and they want to make uh, money for themselves well if you're going to do that you're going to need to pay back pretty fucking quick yeah or you're going to have to do it as a side hustle and do both jobs concurrently because you can't afford to take one year three year five year paybacks so i would say no i think you're probably better off looking for a business that can pay back quick right have you read a book called the go-giver no it's I kind of um, i don't actually read books i do don't all. no I've listened to podcasts. That's where I've sort of learned everything I sort of probably know. Your story reminds me very
0: much of the Go Giver, which is they have a few fundamentals for business. The first one is give people more value than they're paying you for. Yep. Make them feel like they're getting something for nothing. The second one, which I think is really, really resonates really well with Huel, is the only limitation for a successful business is your imagination. In other words, scale is the absolute key to creating a successful business. Why does someone who is a teacher in a classroom earn twenty five grand a year? Someone who creates a teaching app which is downloaded by fifty million people around the world make millions of pounds. Yep. They're doing exactly
1: the same thing, but one is doing it to scale. Yep, scale definitely makes huge, huge difference. You think if I was if I had a shop in Aylesbury where I'm from and I was selling Yule, it would be a very, very small business. But the fact that we sell uh, globally with one website effectively you can you don't have to sell to every single person you don't have to convince everybody You don't have to beg retailers So the D2C model does make the ability for almost anybody now globally to sell to a global market with minimum mm. Investment costs when we first launched sure, I think I started with um, a Shopify website that cost me about ten 10 quid a month 20 quid a month something like that i bought a theme to go on it to make it look good it's about 180 quid so you know with that web- website that costs under 200 you've immediately got global reach so scale is really really um yeah. a bigger, big advantage you've got kids yep yeah, got one boy 10 years old i wonder what your lessons in
0: life are for your boy and how influenced your messages are to him by the fact that you have not just been an entrepreneur but been an entrepreneur who's created a business that is absolute passion passion focused passion based
1: yeah I don't know he's so engrossed in his phone I don't know whether he takes any <laughs> notice or what I do maybe he's ordering uh, Huel products is he <laughs> um it'll be interesting to see what he does when he gets older he's talked about business a couple of times but i think he's so young i mean it took me until i was 37 to do mine so he's he's 10 so he's got quite a few years ahead of him i don't know hopefully i've given him a good good lesson because i could have taken that was one of the reasons i went back and started a business because i didn't want to sit at home for the next 20 or 30 years because what would his be what would his role model be it didn't make sense to me
0: would you recommend that he gets employed or that he employs
1: (sighs) okay so i think you can you can learn a lot from being employed. So I don't think you should, you know, just go straight out and start your first business because if people fail at a business, how many cracks will they actually generally have a go at? So say they started a business, they failed at the age of 18 or 20, didn't go, and they did it again, failed again. Whereas I think I got free education through my work. So when I finally did take the plunge, <clears throat> I was probably in a more, let's call it educated musician so I was better I'd learned a lot of mistakes during the, during my time in the corporate world I'd seen how to do certain stuff in the corporate world I had certain training in the corporate world so I had learned some stuff hopefully, hopefully so arguably you know they talk about in Silicon Valley a lot of people you know you should start a business when you're 20 years old that's the time when you've got no risk you can really go for it but you've got no no life experience you've got you've got no business experience really whereas when you get older you're scared to leave um so that's why they say you should do it when you're younger but you've got all that experience and in theory you could you've got your earning you can put some money to one side and actually get a little bit of cash behind you so i think if i was going to say to him i don't know depends on what he wants to do in life I think there's there's uh, there's pros and cons both
2: ways. I mean, wasn't there a figure that said that um, in a, in some American study that 57 is the optimum age to right? uh, yeah to become an entrepreneur because you probably got your you know your your family circumstances are, are likely to be settled at right. that stage, and yet you've got all that knowledge and experience to then go out there and I, I and didn't know that, practice.
1: but I can I can see some logic to that. I, I think probably it's um, individual as well. Like, costs. you know, we talked about you know Steve Bartlett earlier. He started his business in his early twenties. I don't think I was ready in my early twenties. Um, you know, I started my first business thirty-seven. She'll start when I was forty, forty-one. So, I
2: don't, I don't know if there's an ideal time universally. I think it's probably individual. Can I ask you a question, Julian, that intrigues me about? mentors for you because you spoke about when you had that courage to leave the corporate world and set up your first business, it was because you had evidence of people that you were meeting that were running businesses from home. Yep. You're now in uncharted territory in many ways in terms of what you're doing. So where do you get your, your wisdom, your advice, the arm around the shoulder chats from? I don't really get arm around the shoulders, but I think getting advice is podcasts.
1: So I was, I was talking to somebody the other day about, um, Disadvantages and advantages and so being you know silicon valley is where some people say you have to go to to make a startup and uh, i'm out in buckinghamshire out in aylesbury right so i've got no sort of infrastructure of entrepreneurship around me but then that forces me to find it from somewhere else and if you go on podcast you can listen to every all the greatest entrepreneurs in the world would have done a podcast at one time or another you can search them out listen to them and listen to the best people in in the world rather than your immediate um, friends or family so you listen you could learn from the best. So I've probably learned in terms of learnt from from the best on podcasts. I think they're the most for me I don't read books as I said so for me I can learn a lot more from hearing a conversation than I can from reading some big long You know um, text
0: Do you remember the lessons you've picked up in a few of those podcasts that you're reminded of daily Um, Stay with you No, because I just think it's Or does it just insulate you a bit And make you think, you know what, someone else has been there They've trusted their gut, they've gone for it that's what I'm I think it's do. more along
1: the lines of when when there's, a, when there's a specific issue comes up at work or uh, an opportunity, I'll go, I was listening to a podcast and they said this. So I can usually recall them when there's a specific question comes up and I've heard it. But in terms of regurgitating loads of them now, I don't know where I could do that. But it's definitely sort of, you know, you soak them in. And in each podcast, I hope there's two gems in there, three gems in there, maybe one gem in there, something like that. You don't. It's not the whole lot you go and follow. just like little pieces that you can put into a big jigsaw puzzle.
2: So if there was one gem... That you would want to sow in this podcast for a listener what would that be i think the number one thing that i think is
1: is the the, the it sounds a bit obvious but you've got to start i think you've got to start somewhere start and learn because i think too many people they might spend years reading researching stuff like that i when I started it was easier than what I thought it was. It's clearly harder in other ways, but working's hard too. So when I was digging holes in a road, that's fucking hard too. But so doing the business is hard, but the, the rewards are so much greater than working for somebody else. So I think that too often people don't they're even not brave enough, they're scared of failure, whatever the reasons is, or they don't have any confidence, they haven't got any self belief. But that if you start, you will get more self belief. So you know there's like this uh, motivational thing about making your bed every day, have you seen that speech? Oh yeah. So it's sort of that sort of logic that if you just do one thing every day that you started it then you realize you got a bit of feedback so when i started i probably wasn't sure that i could do it started getting some rankings on seo and realized oh that's getting a result that's getting a result and then it builds from there so you become more and more confident in what you're doing so the the number one thing is just you've got to start somewhere just start it's going to be rubbish but you'll you get better and just get a little bit of feedback that you've got a little result, do it again, do it again, get better, 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 better. And it might take a year, it might take two years, but just do something. But don't, don't just jack your job and start, just try and do something in, in your spare time.
0: If you're an entrepreneur or a wannabe entrepreneur and things are difficult and you're listening to this, what do you say to people that aren't sure whether to give up or not? Because what we don't want to do is convince people to stay in something that is toxic and is never going to lead to anything. But at the same time, you don't want people to give up when quite often Mm. just the other side, just around the corner is the success you've been fighting for. That is a really difficult decision for people to make. Mm.
1: That is super difficult. Yeah. You sometimes have to, to make things work, you have to be resilient and you have to keep going. You have to keep going, keep Mm -hmm. going, keep going. There's other times where you're banging your head against the brick wall too many times and you just you're just getting a headache you're not going to go anywhere so how do you get that right i suppose i've had a couple of instances of this myself so pre-launch trying to get fuel off the ground i was struggling to find a manufacturer i spoke to loads and i um nearly gave up i eventually found somebody a multinational brand that said they were going to do this um and i thought eh, done right we're on then they sort of strung me along for a few months and i started getting a bit frustrated when are we going to get this product they said oh yeah it'll be next month after four months so this was probably 12 months into the whole project they sent me an email said no we're not doing it and that one was like uh that was nearly the final straw i said right this year i've spent How a year on you this come to giving up at that point it was the, well i had given up that day i thought that's sod this really? i'm not doing it yeah i thought that's it i've done why am i doing this i spent a year getting nowhere basically and then i woke up in the morning And I just went, fuck this. Why why am I going to let that person let me down? So I just went straight back on the phone, made a few phone calls. And on that day, I got in touch with the people that we're still working with today. So that is an instance where I didn't give up. Whereas the business pre-Huel, I did effectively give up and move on to Huel. The difference there was that that business I'd spent probably, I'd burnt £80,000 on that business. I'd spent a good maybe a year on that as well, and uh, got some initial traction, and I was getting excited. The first day I went live, and I started seeing loads of sales coming, and then it dropped away really quick. and um, And it was feedback that sort of put me off the business because I started speaking to people and said, "Why, why are you not? You know, why is this not going? You know, what, what's wrong?" And they said, "It's too complicated for me." And that's what Hule span out of is because. Part of that business was giving people sort of meal plans of, uh, you know, the right things to eat at the right time of day, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the feedback was, I'm a working guy. I can't stop at 11 o'clock and cook an egg and some broccoli. And I can't stop at one o'clock and spend 20 minutes half an hour cooking some turkey and quinoa, etc. So it was out of that span fuel. And the thing was, is that I couldn't get Huel out of my head. The concept was, why can't you put all the essential nutrients into a single product? And the more I thought about it, and I started making them a kitchen, I realized there was something there. I thought, well, now this is, there's no water in it. And so therefore it's better for the environment. We can make a vegan version in these minimal packaging. It's got all the nutrients in a single product. It's t- completely optimized. It's, it's just, it's, it's cost effective. It was just, everything was ticked the box. So I started thinking more and more about that. And then I dropped the other thing. So there's times when you have to keep going. And there's times when you have to give up and I don't think anybody can give you a straight answer to when, but you sort of hopefully will feel it of, I can't stop thinking about this. So I'm going to drop that one and move on to this one. But, this, but other times you think, no, there's something here. I'm not going to stop. And um, you have to just, yeah, suck it and up. You and you started going. this
0: conversation by saying you don't think you're anything special. You're a normal guy. I said, I'm not particularly talented. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You are special. I didn't say that either. <laughs> okay. okay, you're not particularly talented. Yeah. In your opinion, yeah, others will disagree. Do you believe
1: that anyone
0: can be entrepreneurial and make a successful
1: business? I don't know. I think I think anybody in theory could, because it's it's not rocket science. But you need you need resilience. You need uh, willpower. Discipline. You need um, probably a very strong work ethic and Possibly a a bit of obsession and i've had some of my friends that have asked me and tried to start businesses I helped one of the guys out. He did make some pretty decent money Um, but he never jacked his job. He did it all on the side Mm. And I said to him what are you doing? Why don't you just jack in and just go for it? And he was too, I don't know fearful. He had wife two kids and he didn't do it. He didn't commit. He's done this twice now. He's had two businesses on the side He's done it twice and never committed And Which is uh, a shame because he will never know he will never know. Yep, yeah. I think it's a mistake I think he could do it and he, he was a lorry driver. So he was not a rocket scientist. He was not super intelligent He was a normal guy, but he with a few tricks of the trade. That I showed him he could make some money on the side and He's a grafter. He does work hard. He does evenings and weekends as well but he never made that final step of of giving Jack in the job and going for it. But another guy I know, massive ideas, he talks a really good game, Um, no work ethic, he will never make it. So I think some people won't do it. So I think if you've got a work ethic, you've got some brains, some smarts, um, I think you can. I think the, the, the work is the most important thing is that work ethic, that obsession. If you can do that, if you can suck it up, if you can enjoy people telling you no, I think that's one of the key things. I think you're gonna get told no a lot and when people tell me no i actually like that it's more motivation
0: so you've got a lot of resilience which is also a key trait for an
1: entrepreneur i think so i just enjoy it just i like proving people wrong so i think it's even more motivating than positive feedback so who are you proving wrong anybody who said you can't do it so that guy who dropped us you know a long time ago um who didn't make the product for us i still remember some people people at school or teachers at school or stuff like that they said you 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 wouldn't do it sometimes those sort of people even work people yeah anybody who said it you know even people on social media i don't even know who said this is going to be a fad or whatever they, that gives you fire i love it
0: we've reached our quick fire round three non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you must buy into
1: hard work speed i think speed wins everything so if you're too slow that really frustrates me and uh, integrity i love the idea of speed that's one thing that people underestimate the importance of by the way speed wins everything he's talked to a lot of sp- sports people if you're fast you can win pretty much everything uh, Same in business if you can move faster than other people yeah you'll win so the example I give is, is is uh yeah chess if you're an average chess player you will always get beaten by a good chess player always it's one of those games there's not much luck well, there's no luck involved if you can make twice as many moves you'll be maybe the best chess player in the world. So yeah, if you can make more moves, speed wins.
2: What advice would you give a teenage Julian starting out? I've ended up where
1: I wanted to get to, arguably. So I'd probably no advice for you let you just go the normal path you did. Because I think sometimes the, the experiences you gain through your life sometimes end up being where you, you got to. Whereas one small change earlier might have messed things up. So if I said to him, well, you should have started a business earlier, I might have been might have been too early for me. So I wouldn't change anything. So I wouldn't give myself any advice, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. How important is legacy to you? Legacy is what you leave behind. Yeah. So you're going to leave something behind. Is it important to you? You would have thought so, because if you're doing good work, you're going to produce a good legacy. I think you want to leave something behind. You want to leave the world a better place than you found it.
2: And the final question, what's your one golden rule for living a high-performance life? Work hard, I think that's got to be the number one. I think without that,
1: you can, you're not going to do it. Thank you so much for being on the High Performance
0: Podcast. I think the, the, the thing that is in my head at the moment is that there's no secrets here. And I remember thinking as a lad growing up in a small village in Norfolk that all of these massively successful people that I was seeing on the telly and elsewhere knew of something that I didn't know. And when I got a job hosting Formula One for the BBC, that was my first question. What's the secret? What's the secret? What's the secret? What's the secret? I asked it of everybody I met. And everyone said there is no secret you've just got to do it and you've got to believe that it'll be a success
1: that's exactly right the same for me that's probably why i didn't probably why i didn't start my business because i thought there was some magic secret that i didn't know but it's not it's just doing what a great way to end thanks so much thank you very much thank Thank you. you
0: damien jake Loads of takeaways from anyone that listens to this podcast either engaged in an entrepreneurial life or dreaming of one
2: Yep, I thought the most powerful message that came out of it there was just start action leads to a reaction that that allows you to then get smarter And take action again and I think that it's important for people to
0: remember that he did come at this from a place of safety You know, he had he had made his money from somewhere else and you know We've spoken on the podcast to various people that believe that having a plan B Can make you feel relaxed it can allow you to really be your true self And I think that sometimes we still feel that particularly to be an entrepreneur. We have to struggle We have to have really dark times. We have to be close to quitting. We have to push through the pain barrier We have to just attack 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 and actually you can do all that, but if you do it from a place of having a plan B or of having a safety net, then I think it can be a much more, not just a more rewarding experience, but probably a more successful one.
2: Yeah, very much. I think it gives you a sense of perspective. It allows that, again, you have that rather than either or, I either have to do this or I, or I fail. You've got a both hand, you know, I can do this and I can have a life that leads to happiness as well at the same time. And I think I think getting out of that binary view of the world of thinking either or and instead trying to embrace the the both and mindset is the way I'd describe it can be a huge benefit to any of our listeners. And I think mindset is such an important
0: thing because I do genuinely believe that we are all born with the ability to, to be whatever we want to be. And I'm not saying everyone wants to be a successful multi-million-hand yeah. entrepreneur, but I get the impression quite a lot of people do. The opportunity is there you just got to ignore all the messages that the world decides to give you which is oh you can't do that you're not equipped for that you haven't got the skills you haven't got the talent because we just had someone sit in front of us and he was kind of shy about it but i wouldn't be surprised if his company is valued at a billion pounds or more yeah.
1: and he said i had no
2: discernible skills I just went and I just did it. That is the strongest, most powerful message. Yeah, and I love the fact that he did it at 37. You know, this isn't somebody that was doing it from, he wasn't a child prodigy, he wasn't somebody that was gambling everything. This was a man that had a career, a family, and yet still had that, discovered that spark of entrepreneurialism that allowed him to do it relatively lame.
0: The takeaway that I'm going to go forth with is his, his chess analogy. You can beat the world's best chess player if you make double the number of moves. Yeah. So just work at speed, operate quickly, blow other people out of the water with your relentlessness.
2: Yeah, action leads
0: to energy. Love it. Right, thanks very much, mate, as Brilliant. ever. Thanks, Jake. Enjoyed it. Well, Damien, wow. I mean, it's been a busy old week. I mean, the reaction we've had to um, Hector Bayerin and Tim Peake, it's, it's been remarkable, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think two... Two very different characters, but again, there's been lots of parallels with their journey about the curiosity, the willingness to embrace the process rather than get caught up in the outcome. And the suspension of judgment, you know, for Tim, it was about, you know, going on his journey, knowing he might never walk in space. For Hector, it was about not allowing himself to be defined by wins or losses. There's something really powerful in both of the episodes.
0: We had a nice message from Abby on Instagram saying, I've come to the party late, but I love this podcast. I'm a teacher and I found these podcasts so relevant in dealing with mine and the children's mental health. I was hanging off every word that Stuart Webber uttered what an inspiration and what a lesson for life to ignore the noise and also a really nice message from tony who said amazing high performance a big take home for me was despite training to be an astronaut tim peak knew it was unlikely he would make it to space but he saw it as a chance to develop his skills for another job and i think that's a really that's a really important message that we try to drive home to people on the on this podcast you know have an aim have an ambition damien but be flexible about how you get there
2: Yeah, definitely. Don't get caught up in just assuming that that, the outcome is the only definition of success. It's what you learn along the way. You know, like Matthew McConaughey told us, life's a verb and it's what you learn on that journey that is actually where the real high performance exists.
0: Thanks to Stuart Gateland for getting in touch to say it's interesting to see the similarities between successful people and the differences as to what makes them tick. He says he's been taking notes in his phone from every podcast episode. Talking of making notes and writing things down, um, we're getting to an exciting stage, Damien, on the high performance book the first book from the high performance podcast um we're at the point where we have to send the finished thing across to the (laughs) public (laughs) i I know why you're laughing
2: um do you feel like we're there have we have we created a book people will want to read do you think i think we're nearly there now aren't we i think why i'm laughing is that i think when people see the final product i think what what i like sharing with them is the amount of hard work that's gone in behind the scenes from both of us and from our editor rowan as well where we've been working pretty relentlessly to try and craft something that I think people can read and enjoy it in its own right, but more importantly, can actually then use it as a guide for their own life, some ideas that might prompt different ways of thinking and different behaviours they can adopt either individually with the colleagues at work or with the children and in their personal lives.
0: That's really important to me, Damien. You know, we say that um, some books are there to improve your shelf development others are there to improve your self-development and i don't want this to be a book that people read put put on the shelf and think oh yeah that was an interesting book i think that this like we've written this book right now, and everyone's going to get the same information but the people that turn it into something really useful are the people that decide to act upon the information in the book just reading it and saying oh yeah well done jake and damien you managed to write i don't know 150 pages of nice stuff that's kind of a total waste of my time, your time, and the time of the person that reads the book. This has to be a kind of a process book, I think. Yeah,
2: and and I want people to feel that they can sort of have a pen in the hand when they're reading it. They can scribble ideas down. They can highlight chapters or certain phrases that resonate with them. I think that one of the things that I often reflect on is that what stops people writing a book themselves is that, that, is that they often worry about that first draft there's a there's a great phrase called um by a screenwriter called Nancy Bird that talks about the shitty first draft the shitty first draft is where you almost get caught in um in sort of thinking that you can't do it because that first draft isn't perfect and i think when we hit that i remember me and you chatting about it and you used a lovely Uh, driver for this that it's a book that you'd want your children to read when they're old enough and see it as a manifesto of the life that their father led that the lessons that you learned along the way and I hope that people see it as timeless it doesn't matter where you're from it's where you're at and some of these lessons they can take it away and use it. it it'd give me immense satisfaction as I know it would do you if people take it in that way
0: oh absolutely i love that thanks damien i i couldn't have put it better myself and if you want to pre-order the high performance book you can pre-order it right now it's out on the 9th of december but just go to the description in this podcast or go to our website the and you can pre-order it there um, that's also the place that you can sign up to the high performance circle so if you like what you get from the podcasts you can get keynote speeches boosts of inspiration and extra exclusive podcast episodes along with loads of other stuff that you can't get anywhere else so again the highperformancepodcast.com is the place to go well damien while we were talking my nephew and my son appeared in the room asking if they could take the puppy out of the crate um, (laughs) and she's not had a wee for about three hours and she's barking I know exactly what'll happen if I'm not in the room when she gets released (laughs) So I better go. Um, but as always, it was brilliant to chat with you. Great to record another episode. And I, you know what? I'm so pleased to see that, you know, once again this month, we're verging on a million people downloading this podcast. It's so important, isn't it, to keep spreading these messages?
2: Yeah, and when people are kind enough to tell others about it, that's the best recommendation of all. And um, every time somebody does that, it's hugely appreciated and hopefully it makes a massive difference in the live, in their lives and in others
0: love that thanks a lot damien thanks as well to to hannah and will for their hard work on this podcast thanks to to finn ryan and also sophie king from rethink audio for their hard work on creating this podcast we couldn't have done it without them but most of all we couldn't do it without you at home talking about the podcast sharing the podcast and having an opinion on it we don't ask you to agree with everything you hear but we do ask you to come to this with an open mind and if you like what you heard Please don't underestimate how important it is for us. If you share it with some friends, mention it to a colleague, ping it to somebody on WhatsApp, put it on your social media. We don't mind how you pass on the podcast and share the podcast, but please do that. The impact for us is huge. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing,
1: and whoever you're listening, have a great day.